This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Stuart Goddard was born in Marlebone, London, on the 3rd of November 1954. He was the only child of Leslie Alfred Goddard and Betty Kathleen Smith. His father had served in the Royal Air Force and worked as a chauffeur, and his mother was an embroiderer. His home was two rooms in De Walden Building, St John's Wood. He recalls, There was no luxury, but there was always some food on the table. His parents divorced when Goddard was seven years old, due to his father's abusive behaviour after he drank, which was often. His mother supported him by working as a cleaner, briefly working for Paul McCartney. Goddard's first school was Robinsfield Infant School, where he created a considerable stir by throwing a brick through the head teacher's office window on two consecutive days. In his 2006 autobiography, Stand and Deliver, he says that the first time he did it, he was just showing off. The second time, he did it to hear the sound of smashing glass again, and that he enjoyed being the centre of attention. Goddard was then placed under the supervision of teacher Joanna Salomon, who encouraged him to develop his abilities in art, and whom he later credited as the first person to show him he could be creative. She was the first person to say, but what's Stuart's day though, it's a really nice painting. And it was like, you know, the total like hooligan, this kind of total hooligan, and so I was like, mm-hmm. you know, and it... Uh, and I just thought, it was the first time somebody actually said, you know, you can do something good. After infant school, he attended Barrow Hill Junior School, where he boxed and was a member of the cricket team. <laughs> While here, at the age of nine, the Beatles exploded into the public consciousness, and older boys at the junior school would mime along to their records using tennis rackets with drawings of guitars attached to them. The girls went as wild for these boy impersonators as they would have done for the real band. This incentivised Goddard to demand his music teacher allow him to learn an instrument. The problem was, violin, viola and cello were the only options, and he was too small to play cello, so the music teacher gave him a viola. Though it looked a bit like a miniature guitar, it certainly didn't sound like one, especially in his hands. He was then encouraged to take up percussion, 
but he says the triangle didn't really appeal to him. He'd go straight to the guitar next time. He passed the 11 plus exam and gained a place at St Marlebone Grammar School, an all boys school where he played rugby as well as cricket and gymnastics, and he began to immerse himself in the original skinhead movement, spending all the money he earned as a groundsman at Regent's Park Golf and Tennis Club and working at a chemist's on Harrington jackets, Levi's, braces, Ben Sherman shirts, Dr Martins and brogues. He and his friends began attending skinhead nights at the country club in Haverstock Hill, which played ska, reggae and soul. Eventually, Goddard got bored of the posturing and continual threats of violence and began to grow his hair out, which ejected him from the scene. He then set about saving enough money to buy a sunburst Fender precision bass guitar and started playing songs with two school friends, which he would also sing. This band played one gig at St Marlebone where they covered songs like Stevie Ray Vaughan's Little Wing, Crossroads by Cream, and Crest of a Wave by Rory Gallagher. After taking and passing six O-levels and three A-levels in English History and Art, Goddard then attended Hornsey College of Art to study graphic design, and for a time was a student of Peter Webb. He later dropped out of Hornsey, short of completing his BA, to focus on a career in music after befriending Danny Kleinman, the lead singer of the pub rock band Bazooka Joe, and joining the band on bass. Bazooka Joe, or Bazooka Joe and the Lilettes, was a pub rock band formed by John Ellis and Kleinman in 1970. The band's lineup included Chris Duffy, Bill Smith, Robin Chapker, Mark Tanner, Dan Barson, whose brother Mike is the keyboardist for Madness, and Pat Collier, who was replaced on bass by Goddard. The comedian Arabella Weir was one of the Lilettes, or the backing singers of the band. Collier and Ellis eventually played together again in The Vibrators, where Collier would also go on to be replaced by Gary Tibbs from Adam and the Ants. Collier later became a record producer for The Wonder Stuff and Katrina and the Waves. It was around this time that Goddard met and fell hopelessly in love with fellow student Carol Mills. They entered into a whirlwind romance that culminated with them marrying in 1975 and moving into her parents' house in Muswell Hill. The ecstasy didn't last long however and Goddard began to feel the pressure of living with his in-laws and began to get jealous if Carol so much as spoke to another guy. He was also struggling to balance work, college and playing in Bazooka Joe. Pressure just, I just couldn't handle it at all. And I, I, I think it was just very confusing and I, I became very depressed, became very ill. And um, I think with that, that situation you're talking about, you're trying to describe what it's like to go to hell. And it's not a good thing or a nice thing to talk about, but it, that is what it's like. Besides the later fame of their members, Bazooka Joe are probably best known as the band that headlined when Sex Pistols played their first concert on the 6th of November 1975 at Central St Martins College of Art and Design. It was this gig that Goddard said inspired him to leave Bazooka Joe over a dispute about the Sex Pistols performance, as he was the only one who had enjoyed it. He said, when they kicked off, it was clear that Johnny Rotten was not your usual frontman. 
He didn't try to entertain or really even sing. He stood back from the microphone with his hands on his dirty oversized trousers and spat out his version of the small faces, what you gonna do about it? The contrast between the two bands couldn't have been clearer. Rotten's clothes were splattered with paint and held together with safety pins, whereas Bazooka Joe's frontman was wearing a homemade silver glitter jacket. The Sex Pistols overran their allotted 20 minutes, and the power to the PA and their mostly stolen amps was cut, which sparked a fight between the two bands, after which Bazooka Joe took to the stage. But the raw energy of the Pistols had shown Bazooka Joe for what it really was, a second-hand pastiche of a rock and roll band. Goddard quickly went on to form his own band, The B-Sides, named because they only played B-Sides to 1960s singles, with college mates Thomas Hardy, otherwise known as Leicester Square, on guitar, and Andy Warren on bass. As the term punk hadn't been coined at that time, they called themselves Losers in a Losers band. The B-Sides practiced regularly over the following months, and, as well as playing covers, they even wrote the original songs Fall In, B-Side Baby, Puerto Rican, and Fat Fun, but, not having a drummer, they never played a single gig. Shortly after moving into his in-laws house with his wife Carol, Goddard dropped out of college to concentrate on his music. But he also stopped sleeping and developed anorexia. I just didn't eat, I wasn't attempting to slim, I was attempting to kill myself, he said. Not helped by the stifling temperatures of the long, hot summer of 1976, he started suffering hallucinations and fell into a deep depression that nothing would alleviate. At the age of 21, Goddard was diagnosed with bipolar affective disorder, otherwise known as manic depression, which involves swings of moods from incredible highs to incredible despair. Eventually, he decided he couldn't create music as himself anymore, and that he needed to kill Stuart Goddard. He raided the kitchen cabinet and swallowed all the pills he could find in it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of Adam and the Ants. After having his stomach pumped, he was moved to Freian Psychiatric Hospital to recover and receive treatment. I remember going to the um, really ancient mental hospital up way up in North London, and it was just very disjointed, very surreal. I remember being taken down a long passage, and they put me in this room. I remember my name being chalked up on a board, and it had my name, Goddard, and it had um, treatment listed, and it was going to like shock treatment. And I just looked at me, and, uh, and they were sort of, I wasn't restrained, but I was sort of laying there. And then it, and this huge, huge cockroach just sort of crawled up and just walked across my stomach. And uh, I just said, that's it, I'm getting, I'm getting out of it, because it was real. After this, he moved out of Mills' parents' house, and rather than return to his mother's house, he didn't want to burden her with this distressing news. He went to live with his dad, who was still drinking heavily, and his new wife Doreen, who instantly accepted the boy who showed up on their doorstep, now calling himself Adam, even if his own father didn't. 
Adam began to befriend some influential figures in the burgeoning London punk scene, including the punk model Jordan, who worked in Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's sex boutique, and who had had a cameo appearance in Derek Jarman's homoerotic historical drama Sebastian, about the life and martyrdom of Saint Sebastian, where she played a guest of Emperor Diocletian. Adam rekindled his connections with former B-Sides members Lester Square and Andy Warren, and they found a drummer, Paul Flanagan. The band then began rehearsing again at Mill's parents' house. It's one of the basic things of recovery from any kind of mental illness is to try and fill it with something you, you, you do like to enjoy. Mills had changed her name from Carol to Eve in the interim to show the world and Adam that she was still his wife, even if they weren't living together. The band changed its name to The Ants, which Adam said went well with his new full name, Adam Ant, as well as the fact that ants are incredibly hard-working, tough and communal. They work for each other. He wanted his band to be all these things, and he hoped its fans would consider themselves Ants as well. The Ants played its first gig on the 5th of May 1977, in the Mills House, to a small crowd of friends, including Polly Styrene of X-Ray Specs, who had just signed to Virgin Records. Over the next few days, they played a couple of showcase performances for prospective managers, Andrew Sosovsky, who ran the Roxy Club, and X-Ray Specs manager, Falcon Stewart. Neither performance went particularly well, and Leicester Square quit the band to finish his course at art school. In January 1978, Leicester Square formed the post-punk band The Monochrome Set, with singer Ganesh Shashadri, better known as Bid, drummer John D. Haney, formerly of The Art Attacks, and bassist Charlie X. Mark Ryan was called in to replace Leicester Square in The Ants, and played in the band's first formal gig at the Institute of Creative Arts on the 10th of May 1977. I started off wearing, like, scaring the crap out of the audience by wearing sort of adopting rapist hoods and leather and looking like a sort of gimp, really. And attacking the audience was my first ploy. We did our debut at the ICA. I phoned up and said we were a country and western band. And we went there one lunchtime. And turned up and I was all strapped up and everything had this hood on. And they, they watched all this equipment sort of coming in. And uh, they were thinking, this is a bit strange. And we did, I did one, two verses of Beat My Guest and that was it. They slung me out. Luckily, the comedian John Dowie was appearing in the theatre next door. He had been quoted in the NME as being a fan of punk, so Ant went and asked him if they could finish their set on his lineup. Dowie agreed and put the Ants on in between him and his opening act, Victoria Wood. The next night, the Ants supported X-Ray Specs at the Man in the Moon pub on the King's Road. They played well enough to get the same slot the next week, and the week after that, they headlined there. Giving up hope that Szyzowski or Stewart were going to manage the band, Ant approached Jordan and asked her to come see them play their first headlining show. He told the band that they had to really impress Jordan, so they began their set with the song Jordan, Send a Letter To. Ant, wearing a leather gimp mask with a zip mouth and leather pants on over the top of black trousers, a look he'd borrowed from the Slits, who would sometimes play wearing their knickers over their skirts and trousers, jumped around 
and eventually left the stage to accost various members of the crowd. Jordan later recalled that they played the same song three times before the equipment blew up and had reduced the 40-odd strong audience down to just three members of Susie and the Banshees, Jordan and a couple of other punks from the seditionary shop. However, she loved the performance and agreed to manage them. Ant moved into a flat in Redcliffe Garden near Earl's Court around this time and began financing himself by doing painting and decorating. He finally felt like his life was on the right track and his depression and hallucinations had completely dissipated. However, when he wasn't working on music or having sex, he suffered serious bouts of depression, so he'd throw himself into music and sex to keep the bad feelings at bay. Both Adam and Eve were seeing different people at the time, and although Adam was deeply jealous of Eve's promiscuity, he subsequently moved a young Amanda Donahoe in to live with him. A week later, the Ants supported a band called Desolation Angels at Hornsey College. Desolation Angels drummer Dave Barb was also their lead singer. Jordan was impressed by him and suggested the Ants should steal him away. In early June, Flanagan was replaced on drums by Barb, now known as Dave Barbarossa, and this lineup recorded the song Plastic Surgery, along with seven other unreleased demos, later dubbed the Jubilee demos by bootleggers. The band featured in the film Jubilee as the band of the character Kid, played by Ant. Jubilee stars Jordan in the lead role as Amil Nitrate, as well as a number of other prominent figures in the punk scene, including Toya Wilcox, Gene October, Susie Sue, Stephen Severin, The Slits and Jane County, as well as more established actors such as Richard O'Brien, Jenny Runacre, Nell Campbell and Ian Charleston, and an assortment of Jarman's regular troupe of actors. Jarman made the film for Jordan after seeing her disembark a train. He described her in his diary, white patent boots clattering down the platform, transparent plastic miniskirt revealing a hazy pudenda, Venus t-shirt, smudged black eye paint covered with a flaming blonde beehive, the face that launched the thousand tabloids, art history as makeup. Jarman had spotted Ant similarly walking along the King's Road. He approached the young punk with an offer to appear in the film. The offer was cemented when Ant mentioned he had a band as well. It was during filming that Flanagan had been sacked by Jordan as he got bored with the amount of time the scenes took to shoot, leading Barb to replace him on drums. In the film though, Flanagan was replaced in these scenes by Banshee's drummer Kenny Morris. Ant had a progressively bad time on set, first dislocating his knee performing with the band. He says he received no medical attention and the producers ordered him back to set after only a couple of days rest. He was then beaten up twice for real on camera, first in the party scene where an American actor Donnie Dunham was fed booze by Jarman to make the fight look real, though he failed to tell Ant. Ant would have walked off the film for good had it not been for Jordan calming him down and persuading him to see it through. The second instance was his final scene, where Kid is beaten to death by two policemen, after which Ant was left with bruised ribs and a growing feeling that Jubilee wasn't going to be quite as good as he hoped. This ending was an alternate take to the one Jarman had originally intended to film, where Kid was to be raped in a photo booth by the policeman while pictures popped out of the booth. Ant refused to take part in this, 
not because of the content of the scene, but to avoid being put in an enclosed space with a pissed up and dangerous Donnie Dunham. The film was not well received upon its eventual release in 1978, especially in punk circles, with Susie Sue, Stephen Severin and The Slits distancing themselves from the project before it had even been completed. Vivian Westwood manufactured a t-shirt upon which was printed an open letter to Jarman denouncing the film and his misrepresentations of punk. It also had a negative effect on the ants' popularity in the punk community because they stuck it out until the end of filming. Jubilee has since achieved cult classic status and has been released as part of the Criterion Collection. During the filming, Adam started seeing little Nell Campbell. Sometimes the couple would be joined by Jarman, and he and Campbell would discuss Jordan's abilities, or lack thereof, as a manager. They floated the idea of the ants being managed by the film's producers, Howard Marlin and James Wally, who had a media company called Megalovision. Megalovision became the band's business managers while Jordan was kept on as their personal manager. Next, the Ants began to get courted by major and independent record labels including CBS and RCA, as well as playing their first gigs outside of London in places like Birmingham, Plymouth, Brighton and Liverpool. They were turning into a really tight unit, often practising for four hours a day between gigs. In October 1977, just before the Ants played its first gig at the legendary Marquee Club supporting Generation X, Mark Ryan was sacked and was replaced on guitar by John Beckett from Barb's previous band Desolation Angels. Beckett took up the stage name Johnny Bivouac. The band played so well that they got a residency at the Marquee, playing there regularly between the end of 1977 and the beginning of 1978. After leaving, Ryan formed the bands The Photons and The Moors Murderers, both with Steve Strange, who was working for Malcolm McLaren, and would later find fame with Visage, and later still as host of a nightclub called The Blitz, which spawned The Blitz Kids and the New Romantic movement in the 1980s. Other members of The Photons and The Moors Murderers included punk scenester Sue Catwoman, fellow McLaren and Westwood employee and future pretender Chrissy Hind, future Clash drummer Topper Hedden, future psychedelic furs drummer Vince Ely, and David Littler from the defunct Spitfire Boys. The Ants made its radio debut on a John Peel session on the 23rd of January 1978. As well as Deutsche Girls, It Doesn't Matter and Puerto Rican, this session includes the song Lou, featuring Jordan on lead vocals, which she would regularly perform during the band's early gigs. The Ants went on to record two further Peel sessions in July 1978 and March 1979. All three sessions were released in 2001 on the complete Radio 1 sessions. The day after the first Peel session recording, the Ants re-recorded the song Deutsche Girls and overdubbed a guitar solo on Plastic Surgery for the soundtrack album for Jubilee, which was released by independent label EG Records in April. These tracks marked the group's final debut, and EG began to show an interest in signing the Ants. Deutsche Girls was inspired by the controversial 1974 Italian art film Portiera di Notte, or The Night Porter, directed by Liliana Cavani, 
which starred Dirk Bogart as a former Nazi and Charlotte Rampling as a former concentration camp inmate. Although popular, the Ants were dismissed by the punk Cognoscenti as something of a joke band, according to critic Simon Price in a 2014 article with louderthanwar.com. Touring extensively around the UK, often with Susie and the Banshees, they proved to be unpopular with much of the British music press too, who disliked their fetishistic lyrics and imagery. In response, the group formed a strong, at times ideological rapport with amateur punk fanzines such as Ripped and Torn, which gave them more favourable coverage. The band built up a strong cult following, dubbing those who showed them support Ant People but struggled to find overground success or even a record deal. E.G. did bid to sign the band in March, but with the provisos that they dropped their S&M look, signed for a longer deal than just two singles and an album, renamed the band Adamant, one word, and write some new songs. Most of these conditions were fine by Ant, as he was already considering an image change and had already written a bunch of new songs. The main sticking point was being signed as a solo act, though perhaps not for long. A few weeks later, Barb played Adam a set of demos by former Ant Mark Ryan's new band, Lustralaza. When he was told that Warren and Bivouac were also playing on the songs, Adam went ballistic, telling them that they should have said that they were starting a side project, calling the music substandard, and that that clearly meant he was the catalyst that made the Ants as good as they were. After the dust had settled, Adam, Warren and Barb got together and decided that they would continue as a three-piece, with Adam playing guitar, and that they would communicate better together. It was also agreed that as well as Bivouac being sacked, Jordan was to have no more say in the band either, as she had started to try to get them to act more like the Sex Pistols, a path Ant refused to go down. Jordan was happy with this arrangement, as she had been offered a part in a film anyway the ill-fated The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. The Ants played their last live show as a five-piece with Jordan and Bivouac supporting X-Ray Specs at the Roundhouse in Camden. Ant wore a kilt and gave a restrained performance, saying in his autobiography that it not only felt like the death of the third version of the Ants, but also the death of punk. Bivouac and Ryan continued playing in Lustralaza and later Swim, Bivouac set up a recording studio where he began working as a composer and producer of music for corporate videos and advertising jingles, as well as writing for TV and film projects. His first TV theme was the opening song to the 90s kids TV show The Spooks of Bottle Bay. He has also remixed songs by artists including Freddie Mercury, Denise Van Alten and Rolf Harris. He is now director of The Fugitive Group a film company that has produced The Craze, Death Machine and The Passion of Darkly Noon, and has acted in the TV comedy series Operation Good Guys and the films Final Cut and Love, Honour and Obey. The day after this final roundhouse gig, the newly re-monikered Adam and the Ants went into a studio paid for with the money from their last couple of gigs and recorded Young Parisians, I Saw a Lady, and a slower version of Catch a Falling Star. Three days later, the three-piece band played at the Chelsea College of Art. 
A week after this, Matthew Ashman joined Adam and the Ants on guitar after leaving his previous band, The Cameras. His debut was at the swanky debutantes ball at the Hard Rock Cafe in June 1978, and then two less swanky Rock Against Racism concerts, the second of which was interrupted as skinheads pulled apart the backstage area and set fire to the PA. Adam and the Ants continued playing their set, as the drums and amps could still be heard. Afterwards, Ant was approached by Vivian Goldman, who was writing for Sounds magazine at the time. She said she thought it was the most amazing thing she'd ever seen, and asked if the audience rioted at all their gigs. Finally, after the band's second appearance on the Peel Sessions, Adam and the Ants got offered a deal from Decca Records a once prestigious label that had been the home of the Rolling Stones, among others, but had been in decline from the start of the 70s. See the young Even though it was only for two singles to be made within one month of the contract being signed, the band put pen to paper. At the same time, Megalovision wrote to Ant saying they were seeing no improvement in the performance of the band and that they should be looking to move away from their teenage fanbase to appeal to the types of people that listen to Fleetwood Mac, for example. Ant scoffed at this, and parted ways with his management company, but one piece of criticism did remain with him. He could do with a songwriting partner to help him. After a couple more gigs where they presented the new songs Physical, Xerox, Friends and Cleopatra, the band went into Ireland Studios in Notting Hill to record its debut single, Young Parisians. An acoustic cabaret-style number, including a saxophone part played by Greg Manson. Ant said he chose the song deliberately to confuse people who thought they were simply a punk band. But the B-side, Lady, demonstrated the band's earlier fast-paced punk rock style. Adam and the Ants went on its first tour of Europe in September, which saw them play in Belgium, France, Germany and Italy, and appear on TV shows as well as in magazines, including a front page in the UK's Sounds magazine. Young Parisians was released on the 20th of October 1978, to confused reviews and little success. On the single sleeve, and the sleeves of the following singles and albums, Ants is spelled with a Z on the end rather than an S. The S's are also substituted for Z's in the word Parisians. The sleeve design was drawn by Ant himself, and depicts him and the band all wearing leather jackets. The artwork didn't go down well with Edward Lewis, the 78-year-old head of Decca, but Ant wouldn't budge, and so it was released as it was. Adam and the Ants also recorded both sides of a planned second single, Xerox and Kick, at Rack Studios, plus a total of 19 demo recordings, including another version of Xerox, all of which were recorded at Decca's studio in West Hampstead. However, Decca dropped Adam and the Ants in early 1979 due to poor sales of young Parisians. All these demos, as well as some other early recordings, eventually surfaced on bootleg albums. In January of 1979, Adam and the Ants went on a UK tour despite not having a single or album to promote. Ant began sleeping with various groupies, despite his girlfriend Donahoe joining him on multiple dates of the tour, and still being married to Eve. At the end of March, the band performed its third and last Peel session, recording the songs Ligotage, Table Talk, Animals and Men, 
and never trust a man with egg on his face. Mrs. Falcon Stewart, X-Ray Specs's manager, offered to begin guiding Adam and the Ants whenever it was needed. Ant also sent an album's worth of demos out to record companies, including Virgin and EMI, who both showed some interest in the band. However, after being approached after their biggest headlining show to date at the Lyceum in London at the end of April, Adam and the Ants signed with independent label Do It Records, which had been set up just a year earlier by Robin Scott, who was just about to have a worldwide smash with pop music by his Project M, Max Tregoning and Ian Tregoning. Each member of Adam and the Ants was given a £40 a week wage and recording time at Olympus Studio in Primrose Hill to finish the recording of their first album. Here they also re-recorded and released their second single Xerox, spelt with a Z rather than an X. The lyrics to the song compare Ant to a Xerox machine, who is quite happy to steal other people's chords, lyrics and middle eights to use for himself and that behind his smile there's a Xerox machine. This is a direct reference to something that David Bowie has said of himself. In fact, there are versions of Xerox machine where Ant sings David Bowie's a Xerox machine, where these lyrics are recorded in a high-pitched tone, similar to those on Bowie's The Laughing Gnome. The single was released on the 6th of July 1979 with Whip In My Valise as the B-side, which was played more slowly than the band played it live. The song was a number one hit on the UK indie chart, but failed to break onto the official UK singles chart. English electronic group Client, who are most popular in Germany, covered Xerox on their third studio album Heartland in 2007, but called the track Xerox Machine. Released as the album's second single, it only charted in the UK and managed to peak at just number 199. By July 1979, Ant had moved into a room in Earl's Court, leaving his last apartment to Eve. It was here that Ant and Barb sat down and agreed that after the album and its subsequent tour, Ant would go solo with a new band based around Barb on drums, as he thought Warren and Ashman were too loutish and weren't playing tightly enough. To promote Xerox, Adam and the Ants went on a five-week tour, culminating again at a sold-out show at the Lyceum, after which Polydor approached the band with a £100,000 offer which Ant turned down, believing they'd come back with a bigger counter-offer. They didn't. They went straight back into the studio to record and mix their debut album, Dirk Wears White Socks, spelt with an X, at Sound Development Studio in London between the 12th and 29th of August. The album's title refers to English actor Dirk Bogart. In James Moore's 1981 book, The Official Adam Ant Story, he wrote that Ant wanted to make a stylish album with all the qualities of soul and funk. Ant confirmed in an interview with Classic Pop in 2014 that the album was me trying to make a Donna Summer record. I know it doesn't sound like that, but check out Dave Barb's drumming. Lyrically, the album addresses subjects like fetishism, historical figures like Adolf Hitler, John F. Kennedy and Cleopatra, and art history, particularly the Futurism movement. 
Dirk Wears White Socks was released on the 30th of November 1979 and eventually peaked at number 16 on the UK album chart in March 1981. It also hit the number one spot on the independent album chart in January 1980. Chris Woodstra described the album's style on all music as a sometimes awkward fusion of punk, glam and minimalist post-punk with bizarre images and disturbing tales of alienation, sex and brutality. While the somewhat pretentious, overly arty lyrics and inexperienced playing are a drawback, the album offers a fascinating look at the Ants' formative years, capturing a raw energy that would be sacrificed for more polish on subsequent releases. After the album's re-release in 2004, Stylus Magazine's Peter Parrish wrote that Dirk slips somewhere between the Banshee's Scream and Gang of Four's Entertainment, all stark, angular and brittle. He called it a rather marvellous record of jagged jitters and found that it sounds a great deal more contemporary than later Ants material. Uncut agreed, saying that unlike the band's subsequent albums, Dirk Wears White Socks sounds as though it was made last week. However, Trouser Press was more critical, describing Ant's vocals as dour and uncomfortable, and the band as sounding dead and far too slow. Shortly after the album was released, Ant fired Warren, who went on to join another ex-Ant, Leicester Square, in the monochrome set. The poor sales of the album frustrated Ant, who approached Malcolm McLaren to manage the band in the hope of gaining more widespread recognition. Ashman also temporarily left the band at this point, and Ant and Barb recorded a set of nine demos at Solid Gold Sound Studios for a possible Adam Ant solo project, using a heavily soul-funk disco-influenced sound. Do It Records rejected the new songs, and Ashman returned to the band shortly thereafter. A new bassist was found in the shape of Lee Gorman, who had been playing in a band called 57 Men, whose vocalist Glenn Gregory went on to form Heaven 17, and the rest of 57 Men became Wang Chung. McLaren told Ant that he needed to write simpler, more direct songs with better production. To have a smash hit, he needed to write a song that used his phrase, Ant music for sex people. Ant and McLaren entered into a 50-50 deal, where Ant had to do everything McLaren told him to in order to get things straightened out and to mastermind Adam and the Ant's world domination. Ant started reading about American Indians and African tribes and getting fascinated with the warrior mentality, while the band were worked hard by McLaren, who brought in music teachers so they could get tighter as a unit and learn new styles. McLaren was telling Ant to read about pirates as well, as this was going to be Vivian Westwood's new look for 1980. Think wild tribal drums. Think of yourself as a pirate. Think stories about Geronimo. Ant began putting together ideas for his new stage persona that went along with the new songs he was writing, with a Burundi-style beat of percussion and chanted vocals. Malcolm and, and Adam got together and came up with 23 songs on a cassette. Some belly dance music from Turkey, Rave On, uh, some weird old rockabilly tracks, and a track by that, that was called Burundi Black. Basically we had a week to use them as inspiration and to come up with a, a, a style, an interpretation of those tracks. One of the best favourite songs was that Burundi Black. And to me, it sounded like ants, you know, ant music. 
you know, that, that's what it sounded like to me. And I thought, that's kind of ant music. And then Adam came in and he said, what's that? I said, well, I'm showing the beat by scratching the bass strings. Well, that sounds good. Why don't you all do it? Let's all do it. So we all did it. And Matthew did it. And it was like, and it sounded really good. We thought, oh, that, that sounds good. So we played all the songs. And Malcolm looked at Adam and said, they're all fired. They're crap. That's rubbish. And Adam went, they've got one more song. He said, it's the Burundi track. Well, let's hear that then. And we played that. And he went, now that's what I'm talking about. These early songs included Kings of the Wild Frontier, Shade to White, and one about Blackbeard to placate McLaren. He went for an Apache gypsy warrior look with a kilt and bells on his knees to add to the percussion. He also painted a white stripe across his nose. However, McLaren was having other ideas. Adam and, and Malcolm are like two popes, you know I mean? You, you, you had to work with one or the other. They were two very like powerful blokes, and um, I've been with Adam about three, four years. Adam was kind of not gelling with our thing, and we were sort of zooming off, and he was kind of stuck a little bit. And Malcolm spotted it, and he was kind of a little bit cruel. So he brought this guy called David Fischel down, who he told us was a, an engineer, and he had a studio, and he was going to give us free studio time, but he wanted to check us out. Adam went off. And um, Malcolm said, that guy wasn't an engineer. He says, he's a West End arranger. I brought him down to evaluate all of you guys musically. He says, you're all right, you're all right. Guitar player's kind of all right, but the singer's crap. I'm like, what? That's how the men, we're ants. He said, you know, you've got to, you know, you could do something with your life rather than, you know, just sitting behind a, a big star like Adam. And he was a very per persuasive guy. I thought, Adam might be supporting me now. He could fire me next week. I'm just an employee. Well, Malcolm is saying, this will be your band. And we'll be sharing it, it'll be a democracy. So I went with, with Malcolm. By the 26th of January 1980, within three weeks of this latest incarnation of the band forming, he persuaded Gorman, Barb and Ashman to leave Adam and the Ants and set them up as Bow Wow Wow with a 13-year-old Alabella Lewin on vocals. Bow Wow Wow went on to release the world's first single on cassette. Both the A-side, C30, C60, C90 Go, and the B-side, Sun, Sea and Piracy, appeared on the same side of the cassette, with side two left blank, presumably so that fans could pirate music on it as per the lyrics of the songs on side one. For a very brief time at the beginning, George O'Dowd was drafted in as a second singer, but he left to form Culture Club as Boy George, and the rest is history. Adam Ant was without a band for the first time since he'd started playing in Bazooka Joe. The Ants had been a revolving door of people over the past couple of years, but now he was alone and distraught. Ant went to the house of a guitarist he'd noticed while playing on the same bill as the band Rayma Rayma. Marco Peroni wasn't in when he got there, so he posted a note through the letterbox asking him to get in touch when he could. Ant went home to Amanda Donahoe and they both held each other crying and cursing McLaren and the mutinous ants. He said the right things to them and uh, they went for it. And you know, they were mates. 
wasn't really exactly like that, but I suppose it sounds good. <laughs> it certainly fits with my image. In an interview in 2012 with Q magazine's Andrew Perry, Ant seemed to have reconciled with the situation. I like to use the word mutiny. My band was happy to go. Malcolm tried to see if I could fit into Bow Wow Wow, but I never could have, or would have. I might have had a broken heart at the time, but Malcolm didn't leave me with nothing. He mentored me. Listen, fashion is the last repository of the marvellous. Uh, the designer may be the, the last person who holds the, the, the wand of Cinderella's fairy godmother. So if you think of it in those terms, I was the guy that could turn Adam into a male Cinderella. And he said, well, what do you want to do? You know, do you want to do um, underground records or do you want to be on everybody's cornflakes packet? And I said, yeah, of course, I want to be as successful as possible. I want to be everywhere and I want to live in a fishbowl. And he said, well, you're going the wrong way about it. And I started to lay it out, what I think you should do. He said to Ant, this album is the kind of esoteric stuff you do when you've done eight albums, you're living on a yacht and you can do whatever you want. Pironi called Ant the next day and agreed to meet with him with a view to help on songs Ant had been working on recently. Peroni had played guitar with Susie and the Banshees at their first ever gig with Sid Vicious on drums. Yeah, I was just introduced to Susie and Steve. We went to a party that evening and I think Billy Idol was... was they had Billy lined up to play guitar and he didn't want to do it because he basically thought Susie and Steve and Sid were a bunch of idiots. So I thought, well, the, these are the people for me. With hindsight, we can say it's an art performance or something, but... We, it was just four people got up, couldn't be bothered to write any songs, couldn't really play anything, and we just made a noise. And then just walked straight back into the crowd and, you know, I think we immediately did an evening standard interview uh, where we said, um, we're splitting up. <laughs> he then joined the Models, who had a minor hit with the song Freeze in 1977, before joining Rama Rama, and a very short stint in Cowboys International, after their more famous members, original members of The Clash, Keith Levine and Terry Chimes, had left to join Public Image Limited and Generation X respectively. Peroni was ready for a new challenge. Ant was in awe of Peroni's guitar playing and self-assured air. He said from the first day they started playing music together, it was obvious that they had something special together. Peroni was organised and methodical with his songwriting, wanting to know how many lines should be in the verses and how many times each line would be repeated in the choruses. This working relationship gave Ant a growing sense of confidence in his own songwriting. They were both into glam rock and agreed that a two-drummer lineup would be really interesting as it had been used successfully by certain bands in the early 70s and would really accentuate the Burundi beat that Ant had in mind for the new material. Having heard that Adam and the Ants had split up and that McLaren was involved, Falcon Stewart got back in touch with Ant and they agreed that he would manage the band going forward. Within weeks, Beggar's Banquet and Polygram were showing interest in recording new Adam and the Ants material, despite the band not having a bassist or drummer. 
to wrap up the band's contractual obligations to Do It Records, Ant and Peroni went into Rockfield Studios to record Car Trouble as a single. Car Trouble differs from the album version, which is actually called Car Trouble Parts 1 and 2. The single version is a rearrangement of Part 2, which is heavier and has a more polished sound. Pironi plays guitar and bass, as well as singing backing vocals, and the drums are played by someone called Terry One and Two, the pseudonym of John Moss. The reason he's credited in this way is because he was double-tracked on the B-side kick to give that Burundi-style beat. Moss would soon go on to drum in Culture Club. Car Trouble was produced by Chris Hughes, who also happened to be a drummer. They got on so well during these sessions that Anton Peroni asked him to join the band full-time. He accepted and adopted the stage name Merrick. Car Trouble didn't chart upon its initial release on the 7th of March 1980, but would eventually reach number 33 in the UK singles chart when it was re-released in 1981. After this, Peroni suggested his ex-bandmate from the models, Terry Lee Mile, who had been known as Terry Day, join as second drummer alongside Merrick. In a 2013 interview with Sound on Sound's Richard Buskin, Merrick remembers being inducted into the band. Adam had asked me if I'd help him audition some drummers, and we found Terry Lee Mile, who was great. However, when Adam saw me demonstrating what certain drummers should do, he turned to me and said, ah, oh, fuck it, why don't you do it? Why don't you become part of the band? So in no time at all, I suddenly found myself producing and drumming. I liked Adam immensely during that period. The great thing about him was he was so energetic and wanted to cover so much ground. He was very, very prepared to accept guidance in the studio. With so many other things on the go as his career took off, he responded to the organisation and common sense that I tried to offer. So it was a really good relationship. And the same applied to our live performances. I remember us playing the Empire Ballroom in Leicester Square and packing the place without even having a record deal. Adam already had a big following on the post-punk scene. When I'd first met Adam, a matter of days after he'd parted ways with the previous Ants lineup, he was very, very eager to enact some of the musical ideas that he discussed and probably disagreed about with Malcolm McLaren. The tribal sounds and image relating to warriors, pirates and American Indians obviously came from those discussions. And when Adam mentioned a French album with Burundi drums, I told him I'd had that record for quite some time. I was pretty familiar with the nature of Burundi rhythms, the carrier beats, the clicking sticks, shouting and chanting, so I basically understood what he was talking about. And I think it was a relief to him that he had someone who could actually help him make the kind of records he was interested in doing. Ant was also introduced to a new bassist, Kevin Mooney, who happened to be Eve's latest boyfriend, and had previously played in Anglo-Irish punk band The European Cowards. Family. This latest incarnation of the band went into Matrix Studios in April to record the lead single, Kings of the Wild Frontier, which was rushed out on the 25th of July. This was the first recording with the new lineup, as well as the first song Ant and Peroni had written together. 
It was also the first time the word ants in Adam and the Ants was spelled with an S rather than a Z on the sleeve. Pironi recalled in an interview with Mojo in 2007, We'd written the music as a soundtrack to the visuals, very 80s. I took that cowboy guitar twang from Ennio Morricone's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly soundtrack. I was trying to get everything I liked into that record, and it worked. Upon its release, the song peaked at number 48 on the UK singles chart and number 19 on the US dance chart. Adam and the Ants then embarked on a self-financed tour of the UK called the Ants Invasion Tour, during which time Ant and Donahoe had a massive bust-up after she read his diary one day and found out about all the girls he was sleeping with. But by the final night of the tour at the Empire Ballroom, the pair had reconciled and Ant was feeling better as a lot of people in the audience had begun dressing in military cavalry jackets and painting stripes across their faces. It was starting to happen. He and Peroni were also being interviewed by the music press who, other than sounds, had largely slagged Adam and the Ants off for the last three years. But Ant saw a bigger picture still. For the band to go mainstream, he went about getting coverage in newspapers and on TV. You know, the NME and the Melody Maker and no music paper ever, ever sold any records for Adam and the Ants or me. I made my hits through The Sun, The Daily Mirror and The Star and News of the World. Adam was one of the first people who, who instinctively understood that that was the world to come. That pop and celebrityhood was going to be everything, it was going to be the world, you know, fame was everything. At the end of the tour, the band signed a publishing deal with EMI for £22,000, which led to a major label deal with CBS Records. They began recording their second album, Kings of the Wild Frontier, in August at Rockfield Studios in Wales. The second single, Dog Eat Dog, was also released ahead of the album on the 3rd of October. In his autobiography, Ant said that the song was inspired by a Margaret Thatcher quote he'd read in a newspaper and chimed with his growing rivalry with Malcolm McLaren. The lyrics of this song are about bands in competition with each other. The song entered the chart at number 50, despite not having a video made to promote it. Two weeks later, the band performed the song on Top of the Pops, their first appearance on the show, where Ant was attacked by the punk group 4B2. This fight was reported by the Daily Mirror under the headline Punk Stars in Top of the Pops Riot, which probably helped the single to subsequently shoot up to number four on the UK singles chart, as well as increase anticipation for the release of the album. Right now, no show seems to be complete without a band called Adam and the Ants. Live on the show tonight, Dog Eat Dog. We went on top of the pops, like three minutes, dog eat dog, that was it. Next day, boom, 200,000 people bought the record. That three and a half minutes took three and a half years to prepare for, but you better believe it, once that camera went, mate, I knew that was my opportunity. I knew we were the best band in the world. I knew we looked great, sounded great. I knew. I just knew it. I can just see the joy, you know. Oh, it was a devastating look. The moment Adam Ant appeared on TV with that white stripe, it was 
unquestionably going to change the look of music. It was exciting, fluorescent, colourful, and not drab, shoegazing, introverted. I remember we were in the dressing room afterwards and we were just going, yes, yes, we've arrived. Dog Eat Dog also charted at number 15 on the US mainstream rock chart, 19 on the US dance chart, and number 22 in Australia. The rear sleeve of the single features the first use of the Warrior Ant logo, which was drawn by Ant's ex-Bazooka Joe bandmate Danny Kleinman. It's a side-on portrait of an ant's head wearing an American Indian headdress and has two white stripes painted across its snout. The logo also contains the slogan Ant Music for Sex People, a nod to the band's early days. The album Kings of the Wild Frontier was released on the 3rd of November by CBS in the UK and on Epic Records internationally. The album contained a booklet to thank the old fans for supporting the band, as well as educate newer fans to the fact that Adam and the Ants had been around for a while. It listed details such as the band's back catalogue, biographies of the band members, selected reviews, and a list of all the gigs they had played since 1976. The album went to number one on the UK album chart, number two in Australia, number four in Sweden, 7 in New Zealand, 16 in Holland, 18 in Austria, and number 44 in the US. It also won Best British Album at the 1982 Brit Awards. The album's sleeve and the sleeves of its singles featured Ant in his trademark military jacket with handkerchiefs and scarves tied around the sleeves, as well as the belt loops of his leather trousers, the white stripe across his nose, eyeliner, drawn on sideburns, and ribbons tied into his hair. This look and the ant mania that ensued after the release of the album put the band at the forefront of the new romantic movement, while bands that would define this fashion movement such as Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran were still trying to make a name for themselves in underground clubs around London and Birmingham respectively. Reviewing the US edition of the album for The Village Voice in March 1981, Robert Criscow judged Kings of the Wild Frontier as a response to British punk rock nihilism. He said in the review in which he gave the album a B rating, The music, needless to say, is rock and roll. A clever pop-punk amalgam boasting two drummers, lots of chanting and numerous B-movie hooks. Especially given Adam's art school vocals, I find that the hook's great, but that may just mean that when it comes to futuristic warriors, I prefer Sandinistas. Smash Hits' Mark Ellen gave the album 8 out of 10. In a retrospective review, Stephen Thomas Erlewine of AllMusic called it one of the great defining albums of its time. There's simply nothing else like it. Nothing else that has the same bravado, the same swagger, the same gleeful self-aggrandizement and sense of camp. This walked a brilliant line between campiness and arthouse chutzpah, and it arrived at precisely the right time, at the forefront of New Wave. Trouser Press cited it as the album where Adam Ant found his groove. Classic Rock, Mojo and Record Collector all gave Kings of the Wild Frontier 5 stars out of 5. Uncut gave it 8 out of 10. Q gave it 4 stars out of 5. And the Rolling Stone Album Guide scored it 3.5 out of 5. 
Ant Music was the third single released from Kings of the Wild Frontier on the 28th of November, and this time had a video made for it featuring the band playing at a club to a disinterested audience who progressively get completely into the band and surround them dancing on the underlit dance floor. The hardest part to film, according to Ant, was the giant plug and socket to emphasise the unplug the jukebox and do us all a favour lyric, as the plug either didn't fit properly or it kept getting dropped because it was so heavy and ungainly. The video helped Ant Music reach number one in Australia, where it remained for five weeks. It also charted at number two in the UK and South Africa, at number 4 in Ireland, number 6 in New Zealand, 11 in Sweden, 14 on the US mainstream rock chart, 19 on the US dance chart, 30 in Belgium and 41 in Holland. One of the reasons the song missed out on the number 1 spot in the UK was probably due to Imagine being re-released after the murder of John Lennon on the 8th of December. Adam and the Ants were on tour all throughout the last couple of months of the year, and changes were having to be made to the sizes of venues. The ones that had been booked before the band had had two top five singles and an album that would go on to reach number one were far too small. Some of these venues were being mobbed and vandalised by hundreds of fans that turned up but couldn't get in, so some gigs were being upgraded to bigger venues. The other change that came with their newfound fame was that security was needed to protect the band not just from punks and skinheads, but also from fans who would follow their van to find out where they were staying, or mobbing them on their way into and out of gigs. After this tour, Ant had built up such a rapport with his head of security Don Murphitt that he decided to appoint him manager of the band over Falcon Stewart, who had not been as close and available to the band over the last few months. On the back of the success of the album and its singles, Decca re-released Adam and the Ants' debut single, Young Parisians, in December, where it reached number 9 in the UK chart. Not missing a trick either, Do It Records re-released Xerox and Car Trouble in early 1981, and they reached numbers 45 and 33 respectively. <laughs> In February 1981, while Ant and Peroni were writing the third album, as well as planning their first US tour, the Kings of the Wild Frontier single was re-released, this time reaching number two in the UK singles chart. Adam and the Ants were appearing across the TV spectrum at this point, from Noel Edmonds' multicoloured swap shop to a live performance on the old grey whistle test. They were also asked to play the Royal Variety performance, an annual variety show that consists of family entertainment, including comedy, music, dance, magic and other acts to raise money for the Royal Variety Charity. Mooney was reportedly unhappy, either because the band had to mime to a live recording they'd made of Ant Music and Dog Eat Dog for the show, or that he didn't want to play for royalty, or both. All of a sudden, it's like 12 year old kids and stuff are showing up and their mums and, you know, and it, the fan base just changed completely. And that's kind of where I got a bit disillusioned with it, you know. You know, it's nice to like do the Royal Variety Show with, you know, the crankies and all that. But I was saying, no, we, we shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. For Ant, though, it signified the high point of his career. 
I got a lot of stick for doing it, really. Um, but we did it after the show. We met uh, Princess Margaret. It's exciting. It's something you tell your, your grandchildren, and, and I was just very honoured by it. And people just couldn't understand. Couldn't. Couldn't understand. Mounting tensions between the volatile Mooney and the dictatorial Ant boiled over during the appearance, during which Mooney's strap broke halfway through the first song, leaving him not quite knowing what to do with his bass. So I go out on stage anyway, and it's a bad atmosphere. And then, either I break my bass, or like someone sabotaged it. So I said, fuck it, that's it. I just threw the guitar down and just started not miming anymore and just like doing a stupid dance, you know, and that, that was it. I highly recommend you look this performance up on YouTube. It's a real insight into the headspace of the performers. Everything is quite clearly telegraphed on each of their faces. In my opinion, as a bass player who has had straps break or detach during live performances, there's not much you can do but reattach it as best you can and play on till the end of the song. But miming live on TV means you have to keep performing as if nothing's happened. And bearing in mind there were no microphones or guitar leads on the stage, Mooney made the best of it and probably saw it as an opportunity to make a bit of mischief. He carried on performing, swinging his bass around maniacally, not even pretending to play it, and ended the performance by dropping it on the floor during the outro of Dog Eat Dog, which admittedly doesn't have a bass playing in it, and the drop was in time with the big Burundi drum beat. Ant, however, saw it as disrespectful, having no idea that the strap had broken. In the video, you can clearly see him ask Moody, what'd you do that for, before telling the band to bow before leaving the stage, and possibly saying something else. In his autobiography, he claims not to have noticed Mooney swinging his bass around until the end of the performance, just before he dropped the instrument. But watching the performance, it's hard to believe that, as he looks so furious that he forgets to mime the lyrics at certain points while shooting daggers at Mooney. Ant said, I thought that what he did was completely unprofessional. It was the last straw. He'd begun annoying me while on the King's tour, when he'd often shout at the audience and swing the bass around while playing, which affected his performance badly. I knew he was going to do something. He threw a wobbly and uh, we threw him out. The next day, the band was due to record the next single, Stand and Deliver, but Mooney wouldn't be there. Merrick remembers, Kevin came into the Royal Variety performance in, let's say, a different headspace to the rest of us and did his own thing. He looked incredible, but his look didn't have the stamp of approval from Adam. We were all in the dressing room waiting to go on, and Kevin turned up looking amazing in retrospect, but Adam was shocked by his appearance and his attitude. Still, we did the show in front of the Queen and the television cameras, and at one point Kevin just went off at even more of a tangent. Well. Adam was pretty pissed off with this performance, and when we went into the studio the next day to record Stand and Deliver, he, or Don Murphitt, who was our manager, told me, oh, Kevin won't be making this session. He'd been asked to leave. <laughs> Mooney's contract was paid off, and he was replaced on bass by Gary Tibbs from the Vibrators and Roxy Music. Mooney still plays music in the Lavender Pill Mob, whose most recent album, Mike's Bikes, features a guest vocal from Adam Ant on a song called Black Pirates. Tibbs joined just in time to brush up on the old songs and ready himself to join the rest of the band on its first US tour. MTV had been playing the Ant music in Kings of the Wild Frontier videos regularly, so there was already a following in New York. 
as MTV wasn't a nationwide channel in 1981. However, this also meant that he'd come to the attention of an American Indian organisation who had taken exception to his wearing a white stripe across his face because war paint markings like this are culturally specific and they said he was exploiting their heritage without knowing what it meant. Ant organised to meet with ten chiefs and managed to convey his deep learnings of American Indian customs and history through his wide reading of books about American Indians and that wearing the white stripe was a tribute to their spirit. He invited them to attend a show and that if they still had reservations he would stop wearing it. Ant said, in retrospect, I admit this was a risky thing for me to have said, but luckily they loved our American debut in Boston and I kept my stripe. The band worked its way west and ended up at a two-night stand at the Roxy in LA where they were watched by stars like Rod Stewart, Elton John, Britt Eklund, Warren Beatty, Neil Diamond and Frankie Valli as well as appearing on many TV shows including American Bandstand. They are red hot. Adam and the Ants are number one in England. They are generating tremendous shockwaves here in New York, soon to be seen all across America. For three days at Rockefeller Center, we've had long, long lines of people waiting to get in. They've come to see, along with old Tom, Adam and the Ants. Can you possibly, how can you possibly live up to all the advanced billing that has come uh, preceding your arrival here? and uh, measure up to the expectations so many people have for your success here. It seems to me that you're under an awful lot of pressure. I think you quite simply just uh, stop talking, put your clothes on and get out and play for people. There are words that run through the subculture of Adam and the Ants, uh, words like ant music, mm. sex people. Yeah. Can you define those terms for me? Well, they were given to me by the audience primarily. I've been using them for about two years now. Uh, ant music really is, uh, we use it we name our own music and music to prevent classification mm -hmm. and bracketing from other people um, I don't think that's pretentious considering it's taken four years to get the sound uh, sex people is just purely you know kids wrote me letters saying that they when they dress up I think part of dressing up and part of fashion the basic essence of it is a very pure sex a very pure enjoyable form of sex an innocent form not a kind of decadent taboo side a very fresh thing I think it can be utilized very very well by young people. Adam and the Ants have another number for us, uh, which they're going to do. And easy, easy. And would you please introduce the Ants to us, to the members of your band. Gentlemen, thank you for all for being here as well tonight. Uh, well, Why on my right, around? we have the one and only Marco Pironi. <laughs> At the back, we have uh, Merrick on drums. <laughs> on my left, we have the tallest member of the group, Terry Lee Mile. And uh, right here, the newest ant is the gorgeous Gary Tibbs. This American tour was another incredibly busy phase and Ant was fighting off depression by being constantly busy, doing personal appearances between gigs and sleeping with women after shows. He added, Boredom is the worst part of touring. That and bad food. Sex is the escape. As far as I'm concerned, anyone who says otherwise is a liar. I've been rushing around, coming out the studio, or, or getting up at eight, going and having an interview at like nine o'clock with the lawyers or something, and then having to go to a, a guy who's making my trail. The way I ironically kept depression away was by working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I was able to just, I didn't have time to get depressed, I just was like, just completely 
By the end of the evening, I just make lists of things I've got to do. He dreamt about it, he thought about it, he'd then talk intensely about it, he'd worry about it, he'd plan it, he'd replan it. I mean, there were times when I've had to say, look, I'm knackered, I'm staying in bed today. And he just sort of laughed and said, OK, well, we'll meet up tomorrow then. I said, yes, we'll meet up tomorrow. I realised now it was happening even when I was working, you know, all the time, and, and I didn't really have time to, to acknowledge it. And, and I think he, he could see what was happening and, uh, in a way, just didn't really know how to react. You know, in my, in my mind, it was like, well, what else does he want? You know, what's he miserable about? What's he depressed about? You know, it's that, that, the classic, it's that classic thing that people who don't know about depression say when they hear someone's depressed, and you say, well, what are they depressed about? And then you realise they're not depressed about anything. They're just depressed. He said in his autobiography, my seemingly tireless drive to succeed in the non-stop work to stay up there masked the symptoms of my illness. By keeping myself busy, I was almost self-medicating. My permanent activity meant that my body was manufacturing enough serotonin to keep me stable. Ant felt that to crack America was like starting again and they should remain on tour there indefinitely, releasing singles all the while. But the record company had other ideas, and Peroni was starting to show signs that touring really wasn't his favourite thing to do. After a month of hard touring, they returned home to film the video for their next single, Stand and Deliver. Ant had sent storyboards from America to the video's director, Mike Mansfield, who had shot videos for the likes of Queen, Elton John, Rod Stewart, Grace Jones and ELO, and would go on to have a very close working relationship with Ant. Ant's girlfriend, Amanda Donahoe, rounded up a group of her friends to act in the video, which depicts Ant as a Dick Turpin-like highwayman who ambushes and threatens his victims, including Donahoe. He is captured but escapes being hanged from the gallows with help from his accomplices, the other Ants. Because CBS had booked a European tour throughout May and early June, as well as three days in New York in mid-June, Ant felt that the video needed to be memorable, as he wouldn't be available to promote it in the UK upon its release. He also wanted it to be humorous, as Madness were making brilliant, funny videos at the time, and Ant saw them as really pioneering the art form. Just after the second day of shooting on the video, and days before embarking on the European tour, Ant was awoken by the phone ringing at 4am. The slightly strange and muffled voice on the other end claimed to be Michael Jackson. Ant thought that it was drummer Terry Lee Mile winding him up, so he told him to fuck off and slam the phone down. It rang again, and again Ant slammed the phone down after threatening violence towards Mile. On the third ring, a deeper voice answered. It was Quincy Jones saying he was calling from LA, apologised for waking him, and that Michael Jackson wanted to talk to him if that was okay. Ant apologised, then Jackson apologised for not calling a few days previously, as had originally been arranged, but he'd been in the studio, presumably recording Thriller, and had lost track of what day it was. The only questions he asked was how Adam and the Ants got the Tom sound on Kings of the Wild Frontier, and where Ant got his military jacket, before hanging up. 
Just like on Kings of the Wild Frontier, it was decided that the lead single for the next album would be put out while the band was recording the album. Stand and Deliver, on which Ant plays bass, was released on the 27th of April 1981 and became the band's first number one single in the UK, where it stayed for five weeks. It also charted at number 4 in Holland, number 9 in Austria, 12 in Australia, 17 in Sweden and 38 on the US dance chart. In 2003, Adamant began an ill-fated attempt to raise awareness of the plight of the endangered mountain gorilla in Central Africa by reworking Stand and Deliver into Save the Gorilla. This was to have been the lead song on a five-track EP with the remaining four tracks all being covers with a similar jungle or primate theme, of which 2,000 copies were pressed. However, both Peroni and EMI Publishing blocked the EP just days before its intended release on the 17th of November, and it was withdrawn. One track, a cover of Jungle Rock, eventually surfaced on Boz Bora's 2008 solo album Miss Pearl. In 2009, No Doubt recorded a cover of Stand and Deliver and performed the song while playing a fictional 1980s band called Snowed Out in an episode of Gossip Girl titled Valley Girls that aired on the 11th of May 2009. They also performed the song as part of the encore to their tour that year and it was eventually included on the deluxe edition bonus disc of the band's sixth studio album, Push and Shove, released on the 21st of September 2012. Upon his return to the UK from the three-day jaunt in New York, the Sun newspaper had run an interview with its Page 3 model Tessa Hewitt, whom Ant had started seeing just before the US tour, during a period when he and Donahoe were arguing. The tabloids had also started running stories about his friends and family. All this new attention meant Ant needed somewhere to lay low, away from the glare of the press and certain fans who had found out where he was living so he took residency in a room at the Montcalm Hotel near Hyde Park, where he was greeted by an irate phone call from Donahoe. Yeah! The pair decided to meet and agreed to end their relationship. Donahoe would go to drama school in September and go on to have a career in acting, appearing on stage in productions of plays such as Uncle Vanya and The Admirable Crichton, as well as in films including Liar Liar alongside Jim Carrey, and winning a Golden Globe for her turn on the American TV show L.A. Law, in which she took part in one of the first so-called lesbian kiss episodes on American television, when her character kissed fellow lawyer Abby Perkins. Ant began distancing himself from Tessa Hewitt as well, but started seeing a friend of hers, Carol Kaplan, from the dance troupe Shock. Although, with more and more tabloid intrusion into his and his family and friends' lives, he began to mistrust all but a few of his oldest friends and closest business partners. The second single from Adam and the Ants' forthcoming third album, now called Prince Charming, was its title track. Ant says the lyrics to Prince Charming were based on the real-life historical figure Beau Brummel, a prominent figure in Regency England and a pioneer of men's fashion. Brummel is remembered as the foremost example of the dandy, and a whole literature was founded upon his manner and witty sayings which has persisted. His name is still associated with style and good looks, 
and it has been given to a variety of modern products to suggest their high quality. Brummel's first foray into fashion was modernising the typical Eton white stock or cravat by adding a gold buckle to it. While in the army, he met and became a friend of the Prince Regent, later King George IV. After resigning his commission from the army, he joined London's high society and continued to push the boundaries of fashion by establishing a mode of dress that rejected overly ornate clothes in favour of understated but perfectly fitted and tailored bespoke garments. His look was based on dark coats, full-length trousers rather than knee breeches and stockings, and above all, immaculate shirt linen and an elaborately knotted cravat. When asked how much it would cost to keep a single man in clothes, he was said to have replied, Why, with tolerable economy, I think it might be done with £800. At the time, the average annual wage for a craftsman was £52. Brummel also claimed that he took five hours a day to dress and recommended that boots be polished with champagne. This preoccupation with dress, coupled with a nonchalant display of wit, was referred to as dandyism. Unfortunately for Brummel, he wasn't as well off as the people he had surrounded himself with. However, he spent and gambled as if he were. His friendship with the Prince Regent deteriorated, but unlike most royal favourites, he had not been shunned by high society at large. However, it came to a head at a masquerade ball at Waiter's private club, dubbed the Dandy Club by Lord Byron. Brummel arrived with friends including Lord Alvin Lee and Henry Mildmay, MP for Winchester. The Prince Regent greeted Alvin Lee, but simply stared into the faces of Brummel and Mildmay, snubbing them without speaking. This provoked Brummel to remark, Alvin Lee, who's your fat friend? By 1816, Brummel owed thousands of pounds, so he fled to France to escape debtors' prison. He spent 10 years in Calais without an official passport before being appointed to the consulate at Caen in 1830 thanks to a good word being put in for him by Lord Alvinley and the Duke of Beaufort. This provided him with a small income, but this lasted just two years. In the hope of being appointed to a better paying position, Brummel himself requested that the Foreign Office abolish the consulate. The Foreign Office did so, but no new position was available to Brummel. Rapidly running out of money and growing increasingly more unkempt in his dress, Brummel was forced into debtor's prison in 1835 by his long unpaid creditors in Calais. Through the charitable intervention of his friends in England, his release was granted later that year. But in 1840, Brummel died penniless and insane from syphilis at Le Bon Sauveur Asylum on the outskirts of Caen. He was 61. Pironi described the song Prince Charming as a cleverer song than any of you realise. The song was a rallying cry, letting the youths know that ridicule is nothing to be scared of. Prince Charming doesn't have to be a tall, handsome fellow in royal garb. Merrick, normally on drums, plays the main riff on an open-tuned acoustic guitar throughout the song. Pironi mimed to this part on both an orchestral harp and a miniature harp in the video for the song. This video, once again directed by Mike Mansfield, was notable for its extravagant production compared to other music videos at the time. 
It was easily the most expensive video Adam and the Ants had made so far, featuring Ant in a male Cinderella role complete with mustachioed drag queen evil stepsisters. The sisters accept an invitation to come to the ball and dance the Prince Charming, leaving Ant at home doing the chores. Sitting around the kitchen table, the rest of the ants encourage him to don't you ever stop being dandy showing me you're handsome. His fairy godmother, portrayed by Diana Dawes in her final screen performance, appears with five shirtless men dancing the Prince Charming. Diana was wicked, she you know, did it her way, didn't care what everybody else was doing. Don't really muck his hair with a wave of her magic wand, she transforms Ant's drab attire into flamboyant Regency clothes. Dawes had been personally invited to appear in the video by Ant, who took her out to an expensive dinner. He said she was a star and wanted to be treated like one. She was warm and funny and not at all precious. Her appearance in the video made her the first film star ever to appear in any music video. Ant makes a grand entrance onto the balcony at the ball and swings down on a chandelier. He, the ants, his fairy godmother, her male attendants and the invited guests of the ball all dance the Prince Charming, which became a much imitated dance as the song rose up the charts. Choreographer Stephanie Coleman explained that each hand movement in the Prince Charming dance had a meaning. Those moves, the Prince Charming moves, actually mean something every move is a different meaning. Pride, courage, humour, flair, which for me symbolised Adam completely. Peroni said that the dance routine was developed when he realised that the beat of the song made it difficult to dance to in a conventional way, meaning it was unlikely to be played in discos and clubs. The video ends with Ant smashing a mirror, then singing the Prince Charming, ridicule is nothing to be scared of refrain as different characters. The man with no name, Clint Eastwood's character from the Dollars trilogy, Alice Cooper, Sheikh Arman Ben Hassan, Rudolph Valentino's character from the silent film The Sheikh, and Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone from The Godfather. This character was replaced in an alternative edit of the video by Ant's own Dandy Highwayman from the Stand and Deliver video. While on the second leg of the American Kings of the Wild Frontier tour, Ant and Peroni started talking about Ant going solo in the same way Brian Ferry had while he was still in Roxy Music. Ant also started thinking about the new look for touring and performing the songs from the Prince Charming album. Gone was the white stripe across the face and the cavalry jacket, in came two red stripes on the cheek, a naval tail jacket with a white cravat and silver trousers. Released on the 4th of September, Prince Charming became Adam and the Ants' second number one single and the second number one in a row in the UK. It also charted at number four in Australia, number eight in New Zealand, number 14 in Austria and number 20 in Sweden. Surprisingly, it didn't chart at all in America, possibly to do with the unconventional, undanceable beat. Adam and the Ants were accused of stealing the tune from Australian entertainer Rolf Harris, who had released a version of the traditional song War Canoe in 1965. All together, all together, lean on the pedals, lean on and lift Ant said in John Cutner and Spencer Lee's 2005 book, 1000 UK number ones, I've got a large collection of ethnic music. War Canoe is a traditional song, but I'd never heard Rolf's version. 
We spoke to Rolf about it, and we came to an amicable arrangement, and I think we were both satisfied with the fact that we both derived the idea from an original source. Merrick remembered in his 2013 interview with Sound on Sound that Adam had found an old Maori recording of a war canoe type song, so he told Rolf, well mate, fair enough about Prince Charming sounding like war canoe, but let's have a little look at where you got that from. As I understand it, there was a bit of a giggle on the phone, and nothing else was said. That was the nature of it. I don't think it was about maliciously ripping people off. However, on the 27th of March 2010, Harris claimed on BBC Radio 5 Live's Danny Baker show that an out-of-court settlement had been reached, and he had received a large sum of royalties after a musicologist found Prince Charming to be musically identical to his version of War Canoe. In 2014, Harris was convicted and sentenced to five years and nine months in prison on 12 counts of indecent assault on four female victims during the 1970s and 80s, which effectively ended his career. He was also stripped of his Order of Australia and CBE titles, his honorary doctorates from the University of East London and Liverpool Hope University, his honorary fellowship of BAFTA, his vice-presidency of the Welsh Vron Casolfe Male Voice Choir, as well as being removed from the Australian Recording Industry Association's Hall of Fame. He has since been released on licence in 2017, and one of the 12 counts has been overturned. The album Prince Charming was released on the 2nd of November 1981, while Adam and the Ants were on their second leg of the American tour promoting Kings of the Wild Frontier. Prince Charming peaked at number two on the UK album chart, number seven in Australia, nine in Holland, 29 in Sweden, 43 in New Zealand, and 94 in the US. Writing in Smash Hits magazine at the time, Ian Birch gave the album five out of ten, and commented, Gone are the strong melodies that made Kings of the Wild Frontier so addictive. In are elaborate details, the intros are the high point here. The surface might be glossy, but it's no substitute for good songs. In retrospective reviews, All Music's Stephen Thomas Erlewine wrote in his 3.5 out of 5 review that the songs just aren't there, stating that it simply has style and sound, which in retrospect isn't all that bad. While Rolling Stone also gave Prince Charming a 3.5 out of 5 rating and called it exactly the same as Kings of the Wild Frontier, except with a blue cover. Trouser Press called it a letdown in its unfavourable review, and that much of the LP seems forced, ill-tempered and silly. After finishing the tour in Australia and Japan in September, a tour of the UK to support Prince Charming was planned. A three-hour show including a team of dancers, a horn section, a 15-minute segment halfway through in which Ant could change costume, and a galleon ship that could be pulled on and off stage. While this was being masterminded, CBS asked Ant for a Christmas single and suggested Scorpios, the opening track from Prince Charming. Ant disagreed, saying he had no vision for it. Instead, he said Ant Rap should be the single, as he had a clearer idea for a video for it, despite not being entirely convinced about the strength of his rapping. He started to believe that anything he released would reach the top spot in the chart, especially if the video was good enough. 
The third and final single from Prince Charming, Ant Rap, was released on the 30th of November and was one of the first examples, along with The Clash's Magnificent Seven, of a rock band branching out and producing a rap song as the popularity of hip-hop from New York was increasing. In the song's lyrics, Ant boasts of his success and his ability to dance, and calls out the anarchists of the music scene, stating that he was never concerned with receiving their credibility. The video for the song features Ant wearing a suit of armour in the style of the movie Excalibur, which had been released earlier that year, and was made by the same armourer who worked on the film, Terry English. He then dons an American football uniform and crashes through a door, revealing Marco Peroni sitting at a grand piano, dressed as Liberace. Ant then does a Bruce Lee impersonation while rescuing the princess, played by the model and pop star Lulu, before being seen again in his armour. The video ends with Ant jumping from the top of the castle into a moat. He throws his sword into the moat, only to see an armoured hand lift it out of the water. While widely panned by critics, Ant Rap was one of the earliest rap singles to chart in the UK, reaching number three. The only other territory in which the song charted was Australia, where it peaked at number 43. In a 2008 article entitled What's the Weirdest Chart Hit of All Time, Paul Lester of The Guardian wrote, Adamant is easily dismissed as pop pantomime, but his peons to insects weren't just lyrically peculiar, they were examples of populist daring at its best, all yelps and Burundi beats. I'd single out his clattering ant rap as the weirdest of the weird, with extra points for reaching number three with a song with no verse, no chorus, and a refrain comprising a list of the band members. Further round of cash-in reissues of early material occurred now Adam and the Ants were one of the hottest bands in the UK. EG Records, who put out the Jubilee soundtrack album through Polydor in 1978, re-released Deutsche Girls as a single, with plastic surgery on the B-side on the 12th of February. It reached number 13 on the UK singles chart. Certain lyrics were changed from the original version, so the line, Why did you have to be so Nazi? was changed to So Why Did You Have To Be So Nasty, and Camp 49 Way Down On The Rhine was changed to A Lover Of Mine From Down On The Rhine. Ant told Sounds, it's not about concentration camps, it's about a guy who falls in love with a girl, a member of the Nazi youth organisation. On the 24th of November, the band was asked back to perform at the Royal Variety Performance again, which went better than the previous year, and saw the band miming to ant music once more, but with truly live vocals. The rest of the band felt put out that only Adam was selected to meet the Queen, but there were no histrionics this time. The beginning of December was spent rehearsing the giant Prince Charming stage show on a huge soundstage in Boreham Wood. The tour commenced on the 15th of December and lasted seven weeks. By February 1982 the tour was over and Ant took a holiday going to Barbados. 
This was the first time he had stopped working in two years, and the first overseas holiday he'd had since before marrying Eve in 1975. While he was on holiday, and hoping to capitalise on the commercial success of the band, Do It Records released the B-Sides EP, featuring the songs Friends, Kick and Physical from the Dirk Wears White Socks recording sessions at Sound Development in August 1979. This EP reached number 46 in the UK singles chart. Not being used to sitting still in the sunshine, Ant's mind went into a whirl about the women in his life, as well as the fact the record label were feeding off him, and that he'd never have a number one hit again. After seven days, he arranged flights home and threw himself back into the studio to work on new material. He and Peroni won an Ivor Novello Award for Songwriters of the Year, and the band was nominated in the Best New Artist category at the Grammy Awards in 1982. In March, feeling certain band members lacked enthusiasm, Ant disbanded the group. Newspaper articles at the time offered various explanations for the motivations behind the split. Initially, Adam was quoted as saying that the split was amicable, but later he was to say that the interest just wasn't there anymore. It might have been Adam and the Ants on the billboards, but not on stage. Band members were kind of complaining that it was all a bit him and a bit like we're all being told what to do. And yeah, there came a point where people were disgruntled and a bit fed up with the whole thing. But a lot of that came from fatigue. Instead of taking a break, I was kind of working into the next project halfway through one and then then going solo and I kind of didn't really want to go solo and you know everybody got just exhausted and just had enough you know and I, I would I, I'd just keep going because I thought if I stop everything will just fall away. Strangely the breakup is not mentioned in any detail in Ant's autobiography. Merrick said you have to remember Adam had a lot on his plate doing magazine tv and radio interviews while designing album covers and flying all over the place and by the time the band split he was exhausted, we all were. He was also showing signs of the sort of fatigue that led him to be a bit less balanced. However, tension, egocentricity and overexcitement happen with any successful band, and at the time none of us could envision how things would unfortunately develop with Adam. Certainly he was tense some of the time, as well as overworked and overexcited, but being that we were successful it all felt good, Nobody looked at it like it was a big problem and an upsetting condition. It just seemed to be par for the course. We were all overexcited and doing our bit. Adam and the Ants had always been a vehicle for Adam Ant, and he would continue to work with Peroni for most of his solo career. But his visuals and his songs also helped kickstart the new romantic movement in the 1980s, which would go on to spawn bands like Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, Culture Club, and many, many other new wave bands. So there's no doubting the influence he'd had on popular music. Don't drink, don't smoke. But could he keep that up in the 1980s as a solo artist with fewer people around him, less of a unit to hold it together? Is that, is that... Come back next time to hear the continued highs and lows of the solo career of Adam Ant. Something inside
thank you for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time.